This is Regenerative Medicine Today. I'm Leah Kaufman. Before we begin today, we'd like to invite our listeners to help us learn more about them. So that we can bring you the interviews and information you'd like to hear, we hope you'll take a few minutes to complete our listener survey at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. All survey respondents will be entered into a drawing for a McGowan Institute fleece vest. Thank you, Leah. This is John Murphy, and I'm pleased to be with you today. In today's podcast, we'll hear from two more people we met at the 2006 Regenerate World Congress back in April. The Regenerate meeting was a four-day gathering of researchers, students, and other people from all over the world who met to share the latest findings in this exciting field. First, we'll hear from David Williams, director of the United Kingdom Center for Tissue Engineering at the University of Liverpool. Dr. Williams is helping to shape the direction of regenerative medicine research in the UK by advising policymakers and regulators on ethics and other matters that must be considered before regenerative medicine can achieve widespread clinical and commercial success. We'll also have the pleasure of meeting Ms. Mary Ann Liebert, the publisher of over 50 scientific journals on everything from AIDS to zebrafish. Ms. Liebert founded her company in 1980 in New York City in her living room. Today, Mary Ann Liebert Incorporated employs more than 100 people and remains a privately held company. In different ways, Dr. Williams and Ms. Liebert both help science to advance. Here's my talk with Dr. Williams. Yes, my name is uh, David Williams. Uh, I'm currently Professor of Tissue Engineering at the University of Liverpool in England Mm -hmm. and uh, Director of the UK Centre for Tissue Engineering which is jointly based between the Universities of Liverpool and Manchester, which are in the northwest of the country. And as the director of a large research institute, as you described it yourself, you must have some influence on policy as it regards science. Yes, it's quite interesting because I, it's probably fair to say I can sit on both sides of the fence on this one. Uh, I'm certainly, uh, as director of a, of a research institute, uh, in receipt of, of government money. Uh, the centre is... is has been funded for six years by, by the British government. Uh, it was a competitive process a number of years ago, and the research councils awarded this money to these two universities. So I have responsibility for distribution of that money uh, and, and control of the scientific uh, direction of the work. On the other hand, I've been uh, in this field of medical technology and clinical engineering for nearly 40 years now and have a fairly wide experience in the UK and across Europe and therefore I get called upon to advise that same government on some of the policies uh, of, of grant funding of work across a, a, a spectrum of subjects in medicine and engineering, not just in the UK but across Europe, mm-hmm. um, which is quite a different issue. And also, in fact, on a worldwide basis, uh, uh, governments of Australia, Japan, China and so on often ask for my advice on, on, on contemporary issues of, of science policy and indeed the uh, use of, um, of certain medical therapies as well. Well, and I'm thinking that tissue engineering being an emerging field is certainly rife with contemporary policies, contemporary issues, as you put it. Can you describe what some of those issues are? Yes, there are a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, you're right, it's, it's, it's emerging, although it's been with us about 20 years now, starting off slowly. There have been some, some serious issues. as, For example, at the moment, I think it's fair to say that with tissue engineering and other aspects of regenerative medicine, we have so far failed to deliver serious uh, clinical success and commercial success. I think most people accept that. 
Uh, I'm not too concerned, bearing in mind that the pharmaceutical industry took a long time to become profitable, uh, as did the, the biotech uh, sector. Uh, and many people are worried that, that uh, perhaps we've given this too much hype. Uh, we have said we're going to deliver amazing things in, 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 in organ regeneration, which we have not done so. That, that's of no surprise, and you'll be well aware that the, the politics of, of grant funding and the politics of, uh, of medical therapies uh, require us to speculate, require us to try to be very, very positive. And that's one of the most important things to me is being very honest uh, with our politicians, being honest with the public as to actually where, where we stand. Within that uh, whole sector, therefore, we have to look at a number of issues which control our performance and control exactly where we're going. Uh, these are fundamentally scientific, obviously, and the science is very, very multidisciplinary and very interdisciplinary. They're somewhat different. We need many different disciplines, but we also work at the boundary between some and that develops new science. So if we don't get the science right, we have no chance. But at the same time, uh, we have uh, some very profound issues uh, concerned uh, with health economics and some very, very profound issues concerned with ethics. Uh, I've been advising the European Commission and other organizations on how best to handle some of these within that broad framework of, of trying to get clinical success, trying to get commercial success, how, we, how do we do that? The economics issues uh, are, are global. They do vary from one country to another. I've studied these and reported to the British government on how Japan handles these issues. How I was in China very recently and reported on some of the very emerging issues in China, for, for, for example. Uh, the ethical issues are also very different in some countries which are, are let's say, Christian as we know it. Uh, the position taken on, uh, on deriving cells, uh, on donating cells and tissues, uh, transplantation of organs, there's a very, very different cultural base here in, in the US and in, in the UK and Western Europe, comparing that to Buddhist countries, comparing that to, to countries which are predominantly from Sikh or Muslim or whatever. And that's a very, very interesting area, especially as in many of our countries now we have a, we have a uh, not to get too political on this, but we, we have many different views as to what constitutes uh, ethical bases. So you're not just talking about embryonic stem cells, which w it would be easy to assume that you were, but there are issues regarding uh, donate, you know, tissues uses and how it's procured and whatnot across you, the spectrum. You're absolutely right. Uh, embryonic stem cells is, is, is a very topical subject. It's highly politicized. Uh, no, I, 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 do, I would like to emphasize much more than that. Uh, there, are, there are different perspectives as to what ethics really is in this sense. Uh, I see ethics as somewhat different to, um, uh, uh, to uh, simple moral issues. In, in my opinion uh, here, uh, ethical issues really refer to, to those decisions which we have to take where there is no absolute right or wrong. And we have to look at all sides and try to make judgments on that. And clearly embryos is, is a very important issue. But we have other factors. When we look, for example, at the commercialization of tissue engineering, where there are products on the market there, um, we have cell lines which, which lead to those. Uh, probably the donor of the cells which is now being used for these products didn't even know they were a donor. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the, the cells and tissues are derived from somebody who didn't actually give informed consent, probably didn't know about it many years ago, and these cell lines are progressing, uh, and there are companies making or attempting to make profit out of that. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that is wrong, but that, I think, is a very profound ethical issue. Can a company and shareholders make money out of something which nobody, somebody knew they didn't give? 
Mm -hmm. those, those sort of things. And there are many, many other aspects of, for example, clinical trials in, the, in these areas. Clinical trials is becoming a very important issue as many tissue engineering products and processes are now looking like they're going to deliver. Mm -hmm. uh, and to who is going to be the first patient with some of these? Uh, here, these are, uh, are profound issues of risk assessment and risk management, but we have to make some informed judgments as to who we actually put in the firing line for some of these. Uh, we can look at both sides. There are some uh, conditions in which we're looking at using tissue engineering uh, where the risks are very, very minimal. You take a diabetic patient with, with chronic ulcers, uh, there, are, there are treatments available, but they're palliative and they don't cure, and we can keep the patient happy for some time. Uh, what is the risk of actually using a tissue engineering product to try to treat a, 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 a chronic ulcer? The risks are actually very, very low. And so I don't have a great um, uh, worry about actually putting patients into that system as the first, because let's face it, our animal studies are not predictive of, of real risks in, in humans. On the other hand, uh, there are some other situations where the tissue engineering process and therefore product are likely to be very risky. And those are often used in situations where we already have a pretty good medical therapy, surgical mm -hmm. therapy already available. Uh, let me give you a very good example. Uh, heart valve replacement. Mm -hmm. uh, we have very, very successful mechanical valves and bioprosthetic valves used in the right patients. These will give 20, 25, 30 years of performance. There are some issues there which we might want to address. If we are looking at whether tissue engineering can actually provide us with something better, that's a big challenge uh, because we can take uh, cells, uh, we can take an appropriate scaffold, we can produce a, the appropriate bioreactor, and we can probably, and some people have done this, grow a tissue engineering valve. But we have no way at the moment of knowing how strong it is because it's, it's got to be made under sterile conditions. We can't, by definition, do fatigue testing on them, and any mechanical valve, which we have to get FDA approval for, we have to demonstrate it's got a fatigue life of 400 million cycles. Here we won't even know if this tissue engineering valve has one cycle worth of function. And so in this situation, when we already have good, good therapies, who we can, I wouldn't want to be the cardiac surgeon that put the first one into a patient saying, sorry, I can't guarantee that you'll be alive when we finish this procedure. So those are the, the sort of issues there. Uh, we're moving more and more now towards trials, clinical experiments in these areas. And those are pretty serious ethical issues we have to face there. And let's go back a few steps to uh, what would you advocate in a situation like that? Let, let's just assume that everybody's in agreement that it's, this is no time to go to clinical trials. Do we need more basic science? Do we need um, better models for, for testing the, the, the lifespan of that device or tissue-engineered valve? What's the answer? Probably all, all of the above. We certainly need more, more basic science. That's not because we, we, we haven't collectively done good science. There's just a vast amount to do. It's, it, it is multidisciplinary. And the, the, the process of generating a, a, a new valve is very, very complex. And then there is a lot more we need to do. It involves uh, a whole variety of cell biology. We probably need to use gene transfection in the cells to get the right sort of tissue. So there's still a long, a long ways to go on that one. Uh, in that situation, um, uh, one, of, one of our big problems is that animal models are not really predictive. 
Uh, There's just not enough like people, and we don't keep them around as long as we would a, a successfully, you know, uh, tissue engineered patient. And, and it's now becoming clear from from work in many laboratories, including our own, that if we use a large animal model for a tissue engineered uh, uh, product, we actually get very different behaviour in sheep to goats, to cows, oh. and so, so humans are going to be very different. Mm -hmm. We get, when looking at, at cells from which we are deriving products, it is, f no human is, is, is the same, obviously. We get different results, male and female, depending on age, and everything is very, very difficult to predict. Now, with that half, heart valve situation, uh, we, we, there, are, there is potential here for using it in humans uh, where uh, the, the benefits uh, would possibly exceed the risk. Uh, and in this situation, um, in the pediatric cases, very, very young children, the existing valves, uh, we know the tissue valves aren't going to last. They will calcify very quickly. Uh, mechanical valve may function, but as the child grows, the valve doesn't. Mm -hmm. And here, there is still, there is there an unmet clinical need. And a, a child who is going to die very, very quickly um, without some treatment, if this represents the best chance... Mm -hmm. then under very strictly controlled conditions, uh, then I believe that is how we should approach this. And I think, um, not saying these are going to be the guinea pigs, that's why I emphasize under very strictly controlled conditions where you look at the benefit, and the benefit is this child will not, will, is unlikely to die tomorrow, then that, that I think is, a, is, a, is a, a better way forward there. As I say, with tissue engineering products, the, the level of risk varies very considerably. And my own view is that the regulatory process should be very minimal, should be very light for those where the risk is very low so we mm -hmm. can build up experience. Experience is knowledge, and that's helpful for, for translating that into other areas. And then we build up, and uh, just like we have in other areas of, of medical technology, start with a situation where uh, you can see the benefit, risk is very low, and then on that knowledge we move towards actually going to high-risk situations when we've got a greater level of knowledge. As I mentioned, animal models are very, very difficult. Uh, I would like to think that in many of these areas, uh, we'll be able to use uh, computer modeling in, in, in the future, which will give us a much better handle in, in terms of, of, of predicting performance. So I, I see that as being a very, very important direction. Well, that would be nice. I hear you, the sort of subtext, the unspoken, there, there's an unspoken pressure that you're addressing, and that is the pressure to get a, a, a treatment to the clinic. And the pressure is from within laboratories because that generates more and bigger grants. The pressure is from patient groups because they're desperate for cures, which is fed by the media cycle because they're picking up on, you know, they're hyping results. And so... Very, very, that's very, very important. Uh, we are always under pressure. Um, back home and when I'm in Liverpool, I, I get calls from the media all the time. And they will pick up, they will pick up, and uh, Tony Atala's work on the, on the bladder was, mm -hmm. was published through the UK in, in the Lancet and the big press release. Uh, there, you get calls from the media. In fact, I, I, within a few days of such announcement, I get emails from patients, patient groups, saying, can we, ha can we come in and have one here in Liverpool, that sort of thing. The pressure is very strong. And we have to resist that. And mm -hmm. that's why, go back to what I said before, really being honest is, is, very, is very, very important in that situation. The pressure is there, uh, as you rightly imply, from, from funding, uh, f or from the funding perspective, from the perspective of the careers of the, of the scientists mm -hmm. doing the work. Uh, they would like, most people would like to have a good success there. Uh, and I, I, I am very, very cautious. So the scientists will get their, get their rewards 
uh, by doing very good science and publishing papers, not necessarily by trying to be the first one in a, in a patient prematurely. So we've got to be very, very careful. Do you find yourself sometimes at odds with with policy makers because they're, they're wanting to pass policy that will curry favor with their constituents when you are saying, no, let's step back and slow down and do more basic science? Uh, absolutely, yes. Just, just to be clear, um, uh, yes, yeah, step back a little bit. But uh, I think we should be making progress as fast as it is, as it is scientifically possible. I'm not saying But we, no faster. But, but no faster. <laughs> uh, there is, and, and you'll appreciate this at the present time, and I'm sure many young people would appreciate this, uh, there is um, desire for instantaneous rewards in all parts of life. Uh, and you can see this with people in their, in their careers. I'm the editor-in-chief of a, of a major journal. Uh, we have a very, very good publication time, uh, but most authors, after submitting to me and goes through a review process, I get email after email and telephone call, can we publish tomorrow? Because so I have a grant I, or I have, a, I, have a, uh, I have to go in front of a review board or whatever. And I say, no, in this situation, we've got to get it right. Mm -hmm. and, and, and whatever we're talking about here, uh, I, I try to teach against being too fast. Mm -hmm. Too slow is no good either. There's an optimal speed for most of these things. If we, if we are too fast, we often get it wrong, and, and then we go back. It's like, it's like the, the, the clinical trials of gene therapy, uh, you know, which were a disaster both here in the United States and in, and in France. Uh, I mean, a lot, of people, a lot of good people involved in that, but in my opinion, too fast. Not all of the, um, the safeguards were in place. Mm -hmm. And now we step back 10 years because of that. And it's happened in other areas of medical devices, which I've been working on for so long. So there's an optimal speed. And that is achieved with responsibility. I see. Is there anything you'd like to mention as we wrap up here? Yes, I, I want to make it clear that uh, I am very, very positive about this whole area of regenerative medicine. It, it offers, I think, tremendous possibilities. Uh, we should be addressing, as I've implied, areas of unmet clinical need. There's no point in us right now in doing things which we have alternative therapies for. We're only going to go backwards if we do that. But when we look at some of today's diseases, uh, both here in the US and other parts of the world, where some diseases are progressing rapidly, partly because we're living longer and we actually cure some things we're kept alive longer. And I'd put in that obviously diabetes is a, is a, is a big factor. Um, but I would suggest that areas uh, involving neurodegenerative disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, more and more people are, are um, succumbing to these diseases. And as yet, we don't have good therapies. And I see regenerative medicine, uh, whether that's tissue engineering or cell therapy or, or gene therapy, these are likely to have profound in impacts on those diseases which would impact quality of life. I am very, very strongly in favor of therapies which improve quality of life rather than quantity of life. And I think we should be very much aware of that. Okay. Thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you, Leah. And now let's hear from Ms. Liebert about the roles that scientific journals play in moving science forward. We're joined today by Mary Ann Liebert, who runs a publishing empire of scientific journals. And to start with, I'd like to ask you how the publishing world um, impacts science? How do, what does it do with scientific information and why is that important? Well, the peer review journals have always been very important because it assures the integrity of scientific research and endeavor. And that is always an increasingly important area. And the publishing world has started journals to ensure 
that that tradition continues, and they're very important. Mm -hmm. Today, journals are printed both in print and online. They're published both ways. And they each serve a different purpose, really. People read both journals differently. They read online looking for specific information. And the print journals provide for the serendipity factor, which is when you're reading something on the right-hand page, and all of a sudden, something on the left-hand page catches your eye. And it turns out that that is actually the most important thing you're reading. The happy accident, the browsing happy right. accident. I was in the journal business myself, not that I uh, ran any journals on my own, but um, I was in the business when the online model was first launched. And I used to go to these publisher meetings in Washington, D.C., where everybody screamed about the demise of their journals because they thought that online publishing was going to ruin the print journal. But we haven't seen that happen. No, we haven't, and I don't think we're going to see that happen. I think clearly there is the, it is important today for a journal to be published in both formats, both online and in print, because they're read differently. And also, you know, the, the technology is not uniform throughout the world. For, for reading and for submission. Yes. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, which is another model that's mm -hmm. coming up. Are, are many of your journals handling um, submissions online also? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. We do. Which actually was also intended to expedite the peer review process. Yes. Well, I don't today, know that it actually has, has I it? I think today everybody talks about speed, speed, and more speed. And, you know, technology, uh, just the fact that there is certain technology, it drives the market to extent. There are, still, there are still people who would like to go back to the way of sending the manuscripts around by paper or by fax, because the truth is that, that the um, online peer review system takes time and expertise. Well, I found also that you still have to wait while the paper waits to be read by the reviewer, and That's there's right. just no changing That's that right. amount of time. So There's no way we could really speed up that process. Yeah. That's right. So Unless we clone some of the reviewers. Uh, soon. <laughs> <laughs> soon. We'll have many more reviewers than ever before. Um, you, I know you wanted to talk today a little bit about open access. Can you describe what that is? Well, that is, that is something that has been mandated by the NIH, where they are saying that any researcher who has received any federal funding must put up their paper uh, free of charge. And they have developed this PubMed central system to ensure that. The problem with it, there are several problems with it. One, it is taking NIH money, which is very precious, and their budget is small, really, as it is when you think about that health is this, this nation's number one priority. So we're taking a budget that essentially is shrinking, and we're applying it to an area where the publishers already are doing a very good job. So that's number one. Number two, I have concerns about it really ensuring the, the integrity of the peer review system, which is extremely important. And third, what is emerging from this is what, is what I'm calling the pay-to-play system, whereby, yes, your paper is going to be published in a journal for free, there no subscription needed, but you are going to have to pay 
to have your paper published. So for instance, let's take the model of PLOS, which was started by Harold Varmus when he was at uh, uh, NIH, and then after, actually after he left NIH. And what that journal says is that a researcher pays to put up his paper online that anybody could access. And this is over $1,000 to, to put up this uh, uh, paper. And then they ask for support from companies such as Genentech or some of the other pharmaceutical companies. And then they have foundation money. So you're talking about really big money. So what is this actually, what is this actually doing and what is it providing and what is it saving? I don't really think it's saving anything. I think the truth is to publish, there are expenses in publishing and they have to be met one way or another, either through a subscription-based system or something else. But I have concerns that the pay-to-play pay, pay system penalizes the smaller universities and college that, that, uh, colleges that do not have the budget to give somebody $1,000 or $1,500 to publish here and there. And also that young investigators then have to curry favor with the department head in order to get these funds. And clearly, the universities that have the largest endowments are going to have the most accessibility for publishing. So for these many reasons, I don't think this is the right solution. And I don't think that the head of NIH fully understands the unintended consequences of his mandate. So I remember when PLOS was first proposed that peer review was no longer a part of the model. Or it was a very limited peer review, if I recall. Well, they, they, they have a peer review. I think what it really is is just that it's a way of taking money out of the research pocket and using it to pay to publish when the subscription model is a better way and, and keeps the scientists' funds in their own labs. I think this is so very important. I mean, when you look at the, the budget increases and the cuts that will have to be made, and also NIH funds less than one-third of the grants they actually approve for funding, mm -hmm. one-third less than the grants they actually approve for funding, I, I think this is really pathetic. Are you trained as a scientist? No, I am not. You're quite passionate about the importance of I am. biomedical research. I am research. somebody who is passionate about it, and I feel very strongly that the public needs to understand these, these subjects, especially in fields like tissue engineering or gene therapy, because in this next six months, and then certainly in 2008, Healthcare is going to be a really big debate politically. And you know, people talk about free health care for all. But then they, but has the, uh, the, the medical community has not really dealt with the issues of reimbursement and how these new technologies are going to be reimbursed. Right now, you have insurance companies turning down therapies and surgical options for patients uh, because of managed care. And can you imagine what's going to happen when there is a new technology that is expensive to administer and has other tests and other hospitalizations? Uh, um, where is this money going to come from? And is this going to be, is, is remuneration for uh, reimbursement, is this, is this really going to be factored in? And this is an important thing, and the public needs to understand that this, this is an important issue in the healthcare debate. And yes, I am passionate about it. Uh, my father had Parkinson's disease, at which there was, for which there was no cure. Um, 
when I was growing up, and I did an internship at the American Medical Association, hoping that somewhere in the literature I would find, if not a cure, at least a good treatment for my father. Sadly, that was not the case, but it led me to feel passionately about biomedical research. And in 1980, I started this company, Marianne Liebert Incorporated, which was going to focus on publications in emerging technologies and areas of biomedical science. Most of your publications are for experts. Yes. Do you have plans to start publications that are intended to inform the general public about some of these issues? No, I really don't. The public is getting more news about science on a routine basis in the newspapers and in other publications they are covering it. And that there are publications such as Scientific American that do a good job of educating the people. Uh, and I, I think that, that the public is interested in being educated about a particular area, let's say the what is new in cancer research, if they have somebody who has cancer in their, in their family or whether they have it themselves. But they're not as interested in reading about spinal cord research or other research endeavors unless they impact directly upon them or their families. So I think it's hard to do. I think the best thing we can continue to do is to make sure that the press understands these new technologies and the implications of this new technology and that they then present it in a way that is reader friendly to the general public. So it sounds like you're, you're, you're promoting obviously the science, the, the science and the scientists by giving them these various forums for um, you know, the peer review of their work to make sure it passes muster and just... We're giving them a forum, a forum for the important work which helps the advancement of the field. Mm -hmm. My own philosophy is that a journal should not be just a passive repository of literature, but that the journal should play an active role in helping a field to grow. And we have a very good record in this because we have published in embryonic fields um, when we first started our journal on human gene therapy, the editor of that journal could never get his papers published in any of the uh, well-known established journals. So it provided a home for gene therapy papers, an essential home for that field to come together and to grow and to realize, to help it realize its potential. Yeah, and a journal really gives a new field legitimacy uh, yes. from the get-go mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. so, That's true. So it's a base for a, a challenging paradigm. Absolutely. Sort of, and there yeah. are new paradigms all the time. That's right. So you've taken some risks by launching some journals that maybe yes, it yes, wasn't I clear have. they were going to progress. Have. have there been any failures in this path, like journals that just completely had to tank because the, the field, or do you have an, I'm sorry, I don't haven't done the research, or is your track record spotless for... Well, I don't know that anything is actually spotless, but we certainly <laughs> had a very strong record of success. I would say that we're very quick to respond to a, a field that is changing. Mm -hmm. We're very responsive to the needs of the field so that the journal continuously meets the needs of those who are working in the field. We're very fast on that. Do you journals carry paid advertising? 
Yes, we do have paid So that's part of your business model yes. and mm -hmm. your subscription base. And do you charge page charges? I'm curious to In know. some journals we do. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm just curious to know uh, after the discussion about the PLOS and them. But nothing you know, like that. Yeah, nothing like that. Right. And, and I remember journals um, often that I've worked for waiving page charges for people who were particularly. We always do that. Yeah. And we provide subscriptions to those in developing nations who do mm -hmm. not have the money for the subscriptions. I think that's very important. I don't think any, to paraphrase uh, George Bush, no scientist left behind program. <laughs> that's right. Well, it's important for a field to move forward, for everybody to be sort of have an equal opportunity, at least that's to be right. informed. And I think and the internet has helped with that. The, the new model of publishing online has helped in some ways to do that. And I know journals are releasing their content for free after so many months so that if you don't have a subscription, you can still read older material online. Well, yes, of course, that has, I think that holds some risk for patent. Mm -hmm. and, and also, what you're seeing today, and this is kind of interesting, I'm glad you brought that up, is that members of the, of the public who do what I did when I was looking for a cure for my father, they go onto the web and they find all these different articles, and they, they print them, they Xerox them, and then they come into their clinician loaded with a stack of papers like this. In an era of managed care, the clinician barely has time for the patient, let alone to look at all of these papers. And what is even worse is when you get somebody who does the cut and paste. They go into a paper and they take what's salient there, and then they take what they like in another paper, and they put that together to make a strong case for their clinician to show why either they or their relatives uh, uh, should be in a clinical trial of some sort or receive a particular therapy. And I think this is not good. And, and, and I, I, last, but this is very important, there are voluntary health organizations for all the major diseases and disabilities that provide guidance for their patients, that, help them, that can help them understand what therapy or technology is appropriate for them. What are the realities, I mean, for instance, in stem cells today, the expectations are enormous. And I worry about unmet expectations. Mm -hmm. You know, in 1980, when I started my company, I started with the Journal of Interferon Research. Mm -hmm. And interferon was all over the uh, front pages and on the covers of Time and Newsweek. And there was a joke that said, if you wanted a stock to go up, all you had to do was rub a little interferon on it. <laughs> but interferon did not turn out to be the magic bullet. Obviously, it has therapeutic application, but it has not been the magic bullet. So I worry about unmet expectations from the public. And the voluntary health organizations can help members of the public to, to put into perspective exactly when and where and if a new technology or, or technique or therapeutic is appropriate. So by this you mean uh, by volunteer? Um, the American or, Cancer, sorry, the American right, Heart, Heart Association. JDRF. And then there's an organization called NORD. Do you know about that? Mm -hmm. The National Organization for Rare Disorders. And they represent thousands of diseases and disabilities that have what is considered an orphan disease population. I forget what the numbers are, but in the thousands rather than the hundreds of thousands. And they do a good job in trying to help patients who have a rare disease understand where they can go and, and what they can do. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're, you're, 
you put a lot of stock in gatekeepers of information. You recognize that there's enormous amounts of complex information in the world, and that, but that makes it necessary for levels of experts to sort of distill it for the rest of us, whether it's the peer review system or it's boards sitting at the American Heart Association who are also acting as a sort of level of peer review to determine if you know, patients, if that information is ready for prime time for patients, et cetera, et cetera. So, well, it, I think the think scientists right? are not really always comfortable doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, one, they're used to talking to one another, more to talking to the general public. And when they do talk to the general public, they have to realize that most people don't know a T cell from a B cell uh, or a stem cell. And, and that they have to speak in the language that the public really understands. And that is not easy for most scientists. And there are some, like Lee Hood, who's uh, um, Leroy Hood, who used to be president of Caltech and now heads up systems biology organization. He is a master at speaking to the public from the kindergarten level up. And we have to get scientists to make a commitment to go into the schools and excite the children about the science of what they're doing, and they will bring some of this home to their parents, and to speak at PTA meetings and other things where the public is. And, and some of those children, this country needs for them to choose science as a career, and to do that they need to stick with math and science through middle school, which too few of them are doing in order to have science as an option later mm -hmm. on, or to have college as an option. So. I'm sharing my own agenda here, but <laughs> I think it's an awfully good idea for people to go out and preach science to the public as long as it's done correctly. Yes, so. it has to be done well in an educational way. Mm -hmm. That's right. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us today? We are the official journal of Termas, Tissue Engineering, which is a highly respected and very strong international journal. It is truly an international journal. Uh, that is all over the world. I am so proud of it, and it's got a wonderful uh, editorial board led by two very strong editors. Who are those editors? Uh, Tony Stankos and Peter Johnson, and now with Termis aboard, a wonderful situation um, for the tissue engineering community and all that that represents, tissue engineering and regenerative medicine. Do you have other journals in the tissue engineering regenerative medicine fields in your stable? Are, is, is your company holding other journals in tissue engineering or regenerative medicine? No. Or is this your first? It's a question of how you define regenerative medicine, of course. Um, some people say that that includes gene therapy. So and stem say, cells. Uh, if you say, do we have other, other journals that are complementary mm -hmm. or that are involved, the answer is yes. How many journals now do you have? I think about 70. Wow. That's, that's huge work. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Leah. Both of these interviews were very informative. For more information about Dr. Williams Center and Ms. Liebert's publishing company, please see the link at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And Leah, can you now tell us about our next podcast? Next, we'll hear from two more researchers that we met at the Regenerate World Congress. Jans Hilborn from Sweden's Uppsala University and Ivan Martin from Switzerland's University Hospital at Basin both work on ways to generate new bone. It will be interesting to compare their approaches. That's podcast number 13 coming to you in mid-July. Thanks, Leah. And as you said at the outset, we'd like to invite our listeners to help us learn more about them. 
so that we can bring you interviews and information you'd like to hear. We'll hope that you'll take a few minutes to complete our listener survey at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. All survey respondents will be entered into a drawing for a McGowan Institute fleece vest. And remember that if you have ideas for future podcasts or you'd just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome suggestions. And I'd like to remind you that we are not physicians and we cannot provide diagnoses or medical advice. We'll hope that you stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Our thanks to the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine for sponsoring this series of podcasts, and we look forward to you joining us again in a few weeks.